so the wind's howling and I put my my bivy inside this three-sided shelter and it was probably the scariest night of sleeping I've ever had. I wasn't obviously worried about rain, but the wind, I, there was these giant trees all around it and I was just constantly worried that one of these trees was going to break down and fall on me or one of these branches was going to snap. It was a, God, it was a scary night. Episode 361, Bikepacking Across New Zealand on the Tour Aotearoa. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi, friends. Man, I've got a fun show today. Luke Garten is with us, and Luke just returned from New Zealand, where he completed the Aotearoa tour. And that is a self-supported bikepacking tour. It's the full length of New Zealand, 3,000 kilometers. And man, does he have a lot of great stories to share with us. So Luke is a fleet mechanic and lives in Northern California. He started doing adventure sports some while back and has a long adventure sport resume that describes all the different things he's tried. So maybe we'll start with that. Luke, welcome to the program. Hey, Kurt. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm really excited, Luke, to hear about biking in New Zealand and what this tour is like. But let's get the background story first. Uh, You told me before I hit record about some of the adventure sports that you did over the years. Could you just give us a little recap of that adventure sport resume? It's impressive. Yeah, I started snowboarding when I was probably 12 years old. Uh, And then when I was in high school, I was competing for the high school team, uh, racing snowboarding. And then I also did competing of freestyle and half pipe. Uh, had a few injuries that kind of took me away from the sport. I dislocated both of my shoulders eventually, and then had surgery on one of my shoulders. Uh, then because that was becoming a dangerous sport, I bought a motocross bike and got into motocross. I figured that was a good sport to get into <laughs> with dislocated shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had surgery and it, uh, it fixed it up. All right, keep going motocross. I'm with you. Uh, and then, found out motocross was a lot more intense of a sport and I had to start running to get in shape for motocross. Uh, I started falling in love with running, uh, doing trail running, eventually ended up selling the motocross bike and bought a 10 speed road bike to help cross train for the running. Uh, started getting into ultra marathon trail running. Uh, love that. I still do that. Uh, then I started hearing about this bike packing thing and went out on my first bike packing tour on the Pacific coast here in Oregon and California, uh, just with a backpack on. I didn't have the bike packing set up. I just wore a big backpack with all the stuff in it. Uh, then bought a cyclocross bike and took it up to Montana and Canada and <clears throat> did part of the Tour Divide route up there. Uh, that was last July. Uh, started getting into split boarding, bought a split board, started getting into skate skiing as well, the all good cross training for ultra running. And then just bought my first mountain bike this last September. (laughs) I love it. That's a beautiful progression. And I love the way that you have done so many different things. Which of these do you think has been your favorite over the years? Uh, Ultra running and uh, split boarding. Definitely split boarding. Uh, It's a a beautiful sport. Mm. And split boarding, for those who may not know, is when you... You have a snowboard that you can split into two pieces so you can skin into the backcountry and then put it back together and snowboard back down again. So I that does sound really, really attractive. Lots of fun there. 
Yeah, and it's getting pretty popular as far as, uh, well, maybe not split boarding, but the ski mountaineering is getting popular in the ultra running community for, it's a beautiful cross training. I mean, the up is just as fun as the down. And then of course the down and the powder is just fantastic. Okay. So these are almost all, I think you could, you could pretty much say these are all endurance sports. I mean, downhill snowboarding may not quite be an endurance sport, but split boarding certainly can be. Um, what is it about endurance sports that's appealing to you? ultramarathoning, split boarding, distance biking. You've got a lot going on there. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, I love it. I love pushing my body really hard and seeing what I'm capable of doing. I never got into like lifting weights in the gym or being inside, but endurance sports like running and cycling can take you into, you know, places that you would otherwise have to go backpacking to get to. But if you're in really good fitness, you could do it in one day trip and you can hit off you know, a 50 mile run through the mountains where it might take someone four or five days of backpacking. So being able to get your body somewhere to a, you know, beautiful places, I I love it. So how did you get that way? What made you strong enough to do this stuff? (laughs) I kind of just stumbled upon it, you know, started running to get in shape for motocross, read this book about ultra running. I never even knew what a marathon was. And then just decided I wanted to try it, started doing a 20 mile race, turned into, I wanted to do a 50 K turned into all the way up to a hundred milers. And then I just found I was really good at running for a long time. <laughs> so what is it like for you? What's your experience when you take off and let's, let's just say you're going to do a hundred miler. What is that like? Holy cow. How long does it take and how does it feel? And what does your body go through? Uh, it's really painful. Um, pretty much everything after about 22 miles is kind of painful but it never seems to get that worse after 22 25 miles it just continues on of being semi-discomfort pain so as long as you can just keep pushing through it it's uh it's pretty amazing what your body is able to do but my first 100 miler was the wasatch front in uh, utah it was across the mountain ranges there i think that took 23 hours so just sleep deprivation alone would be a big deal there is it hard to stay alert when you're running like that? No, because, uh, I mean, it was during a race, so there's, you're dreamt up. I never had issues with being tired or sleepy. It was more just, you know, IT band pain or muscle pain. You're just dealing with, with that. Hmm. Okay. And food has to be a big deal when you're doing that long of an event. I, I don't want to spend all day on these ultra running, but I do want to kind of get a feel for what endurance events in general are like. So how do you stay fueled up? Uh, just granola bars or gels, sometimes like the goo energy drinks or other products like that. I usually try to consume about two to 300 calories an hour. So similar to what you do cycling, except it's a lot harder to eat running. Your stomach doesn't want to take on food as well. Right. It's just keep eating 200 calories an hour and you can (laughs) keep going. As long as you keep eating, you can keep going. So you have to learn to run and eat. Yeah. Yeah. You do that a lot in training because you're always doing, you know, all day runs of the mountains as your training runs. So you're fueling the same way. Okay. Well, let's get to the, the distance biking now. Uh, the trip that you did now, I'm, I'm still struggling to say this correctly because I'm, I haven't heard the word enough times, but the tour, Aotearoa. Did I get close? That's right. Okay. Aotearoa. There's probably a lot of people in New Zealand that are hearing me pronounce some of these words and I'm doing it wrong, but that's about as close as I'm going to be able to get. <laughs> All right. 
Well, that's 3,000 kilometers, and you said that you did that distance in about 15 days. So we're talking about 200 kilometers. So uh, what is that, like 120, 130 miles a day on this bike? I mean, that's a long way. Yeah, that's that's about what I averaged. I mean, there were some days I probably, I think I only got 60 miles in on my lowest day and then 180 miles on my highest day. Wow. Okay, so I have done distance biking, but not the those huge distances. For me, it was more like 50 to 80 miles a day, right? So I kind of have a feel for that. But doing more than 100 miles day after day after day, uh, did your body have any challenges with that? Or was it just like, well, I'm just going a long time? I well, So, I mean, I had issues with my body on the first few days. And I don't know if it was from sitting on the airplane for you know, all day to fly there. And then you're on a bus for the next day going up towards the start. But I did a short 50 mile ride or 60 mile ride up towards the start the day before. And I, my legs were cramping and I was having weird muscle issues. And on the first day I was, I got this giant knot on the inside of my leg and I was limping halfway into my first day. And I, I thought I wasn't going to be able to even do this tour. I thought my day, my whole trip was done on day one. And I ended up having to go to a hotel or not a hotel. It was a, a bed, a homestay. I rented a bedroom in this house and I ended up just massaging my leg to get the knot out. And then the next day it was better. The day after that I had zero pain. So it, it was a, you know, weird freak out moment, but, uh, yeah, my body kept getting these weird tendonitis things. And the next day they would just overcome them and, it's like everything just took care of itself, and all I had to do was ride. So you just kept working through it. So when do you know to stop? I have to ask that question just kind of in general, because when you're doing endurance sports like this, some pain you know will get well later, some pain you can just work through, and it's never an issue. But some things you should probably stop. How do you know when to say no? <laughs> well, the, the inner leg pain, that was getting to the point where I was going to have to stop. I, I just couldn't. I didn't think I was going to be able to continue on, but just general tendonitis. I mean, I get that from training all the time and you just, if it gets worse as you're riding, that's when you should stop. But if you go for a couple hours and the pain goes away, that's, it's usually fine to keep going. That's usually my rule or that's worked for me. Okay. Well, let's dive into the tour itself. I want to hear all these great stories. I'm really excited to to hear what that was like. So first question is how did you hear about this and what convinced you to go try it? So I, I've been wanting to do the Tour Divide and it just, it ends up being at a, the wrong time of the year for me. It's like right on my daughter's birthday. And so I've, it's going to be a hard one for me to ever do that one until she's older. So I was uh, going to do another trip. I was planning on going to Europe for three weeks and bikepacking in Europe. And I was on bikepacking.com's website, looking at routes that they had on there and I just stumbled across the tour out to Euroa and it was the exact length of a kind of a ride I was looking to do. And it looked even better than anything I was going to come up with. And there's a, they allow up to 600 other mountain bikers. So I thought it'd be great to heck I'll find other like-minded riders out there to meet. So that was the, the big discovery. And then did you have to plan for it for a while or was it, Oh shoot, let's go. Yeah. So I, I, I found it in May of 2017 and they were already filling up registration for it. And they were coming down to, 
I think they already had 500 people signed up for it and they only had a few left. So I just quickly went to my boss and asked for, you know, permission to have this much time off. He granted it, talked to my wife to see if she wanted to come with me. And she gave me the blessing to go ahead and sign up for it and go for it. Well, I went online and I saw the website, uh, Tour Aotearoa, and it kind of talks about the route and says that the route's open year-round, but there are some seasons that are a lot better than others to try to do it. But you're talking about an organized event on the route, but this is open for people to do anytime. Is that right? Yeah, so it's just like the Tour Divide is a race that they do on the Great Divide mountain bike route. So that route is open all the time for anyone, but the tour is only on, what is it, like June 10th or early in June to do that tour. So this is the same way the Tour Aotearoa is a bike packing route from the north end of the North Island from Cape Rianga down to Bluff, which is the southernmost point in the South Island. And it's 3000 kilometer route. And this brevet is a, an organized route or an organized event that goes on the route. So they do this in February. I think like February 9th was the first wave and they split everyone up into 100 peoples. Like every other day, they'd send 100 people out. And I just, uh, yeah, I was supposed to be in wave three and started out. So wave three was on day three. Is that the way it works? Yeah, it was like, uh, so wave one and then they'd go two days, wave two and then go two days and then wave three. So I was signed up for wave three and I kind of got overly anxious. I was there two days before. So I decided to go a day early and I just went on my own. So you just took off. I got, I got a little ink. <laughs> right <Yeah>. on. <laughs> well, what was it like with that many people there? I guess spreading it out makes a lot of sense, but does it spread pretty thin on the route, or do you have clumps of people that are biking together? Uh, there were, I mean, people were in like groups of two or three occasionally, but they split it up. The reason they split it up was that on your first like two days, or if you're a fast rider, it could be two days. If you're a slower rider, it'd be four days. You end up where you have to take a boat across one of the bays. And this boat can only take 30 people, and it only leaves twice a day. Oh. So if they were to put 600 people at the beginning, it would just bottleneck, and everyone would pile up at this boat. Okay. Yeah. So so that was that was the main reason. Two, the campgrounds would have been overly packed. And it would have been a pain in the butt trying to get hotel accommodations if you wanted a hotel or a room in a hostel. So it worked out beautiful for it. And since this isn't technically a race, they didn't they don't call it a race. They don't they don't uh, award anybody for the fastest time. So it doesn't really matter to have everyone and a mass start. Sure, right. Well, I have so many questions, I hardly know where to start. But one is the, the route itself. Give us a feel for it. I looked online and I saw that there are paved roads, there are gravel roads, there are um, kind of nicer trails, there are tr- pure mountain trails. So what was the route like? It's about 50% paved and probably 30% dirt road. And then 20% is single track trail. Uh, oh, there's also a beach. You ride on 90 mile beach, which is actually only 90 kilometers or so, but you're riding on the beach on the sand. Um, so it's a, it's a variation. You pretty much, you have to be on a mountain bike or a cyclocross bike. If you wanted, uh, there were a few of them, but most people are on a hardtail mountain bike, uh, or 
there'd be occasionally someone who had a, a rigid mountain bike. Some people would ride drop bars if they wanted. I rode standard flat bars. A lot of people run aero bars for different comfort reasons. But so, I mean, it's basically the same thing that you'd see on the Tour Divide or some of these other mountain bike, bike packing events. So with the bike packing, you always hear people say hardtail. Can you tell our listeners why that yeah. is? Yeah, a hardtail is a mountain bike that doesn't have a rear suspension, so it's just a rigid frame for the rear tire, and then you'd have a suspension fork. And most people ride that for various reasons. Uh, one of them is you can run a bigger frame bag because you don't have a rear suspension shock taking up room. And the other reason is maintenance or you know possibility of a breakdown. If you have a full suspension bike and you have an issue with your rear derailleur, or your rear shift mechanism, it's harder to turn that into a single speed because of the moving uh, rear shock. You, it, it messes with you know, a tight chain. It, it, you can't just um, cut your chain and put it in a single speed if you have a full suspension bike because of the rear uh, suspension. Mm. So there's, there's that. So it's just a, it's a simplified system then. Yeah, it's real simple. It's not as fun on some of the technical mountain bike trails but you know it's definitely more bulletproof right on well describe your bike and your your bike bag it's not really panniers right a bike bag setup that you're using yeah so i i have a alinsky titanium hardtail and i honestly i bought it for bike packing i bought it for this event um i didn't have a mountain bike before october of last year or september of last year so I've just been riding on a cyclocross bike or a regular road bike before then. And, um, yeah, I bought this titanium bike more to get a titanium over carbon fiber. Cause I was a little bit worried about flying with it and then other abuse that the trail could give a bike out in the middle of nowhere. And then I run all the standard bike packing bags. So you have a frame that you can put in the center of your bike. It goes in the center triangle. Uh, I'd hold like my three liter water bottle or water bladder in the upper portion. Uh, the lower portion will hold my tools and spare bike parts. I'd have a giant rear saddle seat bag that has all my clothes in it. Uh, had another harness bag on the front of the handlebar that would hold my sleep system. So I just a small lightweight waterproof bivy and a really ultra lightweight sleeping bag. Um, and then a few other various small bags on there holding food. So it really is uh, an ultralight setup. It has to be to fit on the bike. Did you find that that was restrictive or was it liberating? No, it's in my opinion, it's way better to be really lightweight because then climbing hills is way easier. It's a lot more fun to climb hills when you're not pulling a really heavy setup. So like your standard touring bike would have panniers on it. And they could weigh up to like 70 pounds, 80 pounds total. I think my setup with a day's worth of food or two days worth of food and water was 47 pounds, 48 pounds. But it's, you don't carry any, I didn't carry any like street clothes. There was no, I didn't carry extra shoes. I just had cycling shoes, one jersey, one short sleeve jersey. I had two cycling shorts that I, but I'd alternate back and forth. Um, so just a real minimal setup, but really it was enough stuff that I could have gone for months with this setup. Nice. Well, tell us the big picture then of the trip itself. What was the general feeling that you had when you were doing this? I mean, 
when you were done, you look back on it. How does it feel? Oh man, it, it was, it was an incredible experience. Uh, you know, I was there for three weeks total, two weeks of it was just doing the tour out to and uh, New Zealand was just such a beautiful place. If it wasn't, you know, lush rainforest, it was rolling green hills full of sheep and cattle. So, I mean, I guess a long time ago, it was almost all rainforest. But when uh, English settlers came there, like in the mid 1700s to early 1800s, they kind of mass burned a lot of the forest to make room for agriculture. So there's a lot of there's a lot of sheep there and a lot of cattle there. And then if it wasn't that, it was just lush rainforest, just absolutely beautiful. What about the weather? <laughs> so the weather, so this was uh, February is summertime there. But they were having, they were breaking records as far as some of the towns. It was their hottest sem- summer they've ever recorded. In some of the towns, this was their wettest summer they've ever recorded. We had uh, Cyclone Gita came through, which a cyclone is a hurricane, but on the southern hemisphere. Um, and that, that brought in a ton of rain and a ton of wind. And even when the cyclone wasn't happening, there was tropical storms were blowing in. When I was done and after I left New Zealand, I think the next few days later, they had another cyclone come in, uh, Cyclone Hola or Hala or something. So it's been, this is one of their wettest summers. This is not their typical, typical summer there. That does not sound like ideal weather for biking, but how was the experience? <laughs> no, it's definitely not ideal. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a big baby when it comes to riding my bike in the rain. I hate riding in the rain, but <laughs> I mean you prepare for it and you just have to do it. I mean, I, so part of, part of the reason I did it in 15 days, even though I had 20 or 21 days there was, so I, if there was a terrible storm day, I could have just bailed out and stayed inside all day and let it pass. Or if I had a bike issue or any other issue I had, I had days that I could, you know, that I could, uh, I'd still be able to finish the route and take days off if I needed. And, you know, I, when you're there and there's 600 other mountain bikers there and everyone else is still riding in the rain, I wasn't going to be the wimpy guy from the U S that couldn't handle riding in the rain. So I kept going. When that came through, the cyclone came through, did that shut everyone down or w- did it kind of skirt the, the islands? It, uh, it, it caused most of the cyclone hit between the two islands. So right through the cook Strait is, I think it hammered the north end of the South Island the most. And I was at the south, southern end of the, south, the North Island at the time. So it didn't hurt me as bad as it would have if you were a few hundred kilometers south into the route more. But we still had 100 mile an hour winds. I ended up taking shelter at the top of this mountain, which I guess it's the Rumataka, Rumataka Summit. When everyone knows that this is like a terribly windy spot always. And that's where I decided I was going to camp that night because I couldn't find any other campgrounds further on down the route. And there was this three-sided shelter up there. So the wind's howling, and I put my my bivy inside this three-sided shelter. And it was probably the scariest night of sleeping I've ever had. Oh, ever. It, there, I wasn't obviously worried about rain, but the wind, I, there was these giant trees all around it. And I was just constantly worried that one of these trees was going to break down, fall on me. Or one of these branches was going to snap. It was a, God, it was a scary night. Wow.
Planning a new product or your next big trip? Running out of space for those ideas? U.S. Markerboard offers whiteboards and glassboards of every size, color, and surface material to keep you planning. From floor-to-ceiling boards to projectable glassboards for that perfect presentation, custom work is their specialty. U.S. Markerboard is the go-to for planning your team collaboration space. Think your needs are too complex? U.S. Markerboard welcomes the adventure of fulfilling your order. Use promo code ADVENTURE to get 12% off at usmarkerboard.com. As I'm sure you know from listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, some of the safest and best snow conditions for backcountry skiing of the whole year happen in the springtime. And Bentgate has the gear you need. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammut, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Man, what could you do? Is there any way that you could protect yourself, or you just kind of had to wait and see? <laughs> well, I mean, it was uh, it was dark and in the middle of the night, so the only option I had was either stay there in that shelter or pedal on and continue on in the dark and try to find shelter in someone's house or something or, or in a hotel. I mean, but so to make things worse, right when I was getting into this shelter, there's a little one-inch high piece of wood and wasn't even paying attention, and I came across it at a 45-degree angle and slipped on it because it was wet and fell right on my right side and bent my derailleur in. Oh, no. So I was already kind of done at that point. So I pulled, pulled the derailleur out, and it snapped the derailleur hanger. So at that point, now I'm <laughs> a little bit of panic. But So I just decided I was going to cut the chain and turn it into a single-speed setup. I uh, just removed the derailleur altogether and just run it as a single speed. So I was, I mean, I was already worried about trying to ride it like that. So I just hunkered down and stayed there for the night. I figured I'd deal with it in the morning. Well, it makes for an amazing story. I mean, years from now, you're going to look back and on that one night and you're still going to remember it very vividly. Did you get much sleep? No, no. I mean, I, every time the wind would howl, I'd wake back up, grab my flashlight, and look around to see if trees are still up there. And yeah, I probably slept, you know, in 30 minute intervals for a few hours that night. <laughs> Man. Well, that's the thing that's so crazy is the idea of the trees falling. That would have scared me in the end in the morning. Did the trees look like they were none the worse for wear or was there damage? The ones directly around me were all fine, but I mean, further on down the trail, as I rode out of there, there was, yeah, there was down trees all over and mudslides, a lot of mudslides damage from it. It really hit the 
South Island more, like the town of Picton and Nelson. Uh, there was a lot more mudslides down there and trees falling over down there. How much hike-a-bike did you have then? With mudslides and everything else, did it did it mess up the route? Do you have to carry your bike a lot? Honestly, no. Um, on the route itself, when I went through everything, I mean, there was a lot of down trees, but you just rode over it all. It, it really didn't mess up the trails too much. There was a lot more actual road damage and damage elsewhere. So luckily for me, it didn't didn't really affect my riding or my route for me at all. Well, you got perhaps more than you bargained for with the weather that you had. Are you glad it turned out that way in retrospect because you have bigger memories, or would you rather have had better weather? <laughs> I would rather have had better weather. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that was my first time ever experiencing a cyclone, so I guess, you know, it was it was fun to have to experience something like that. I kind of wish I would have camped somewhere else instead of on top of the summit where the wind was worse. But... <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so then I wake up in the morning, and now I'm in a single speed in a terrible gear ratio. I mean, I maxed out at about 10 miles an hour, 17 kilometers per hour, and that's very slow. I mean, pedaling as fast as I can, I can only go 10 miles an hour because of the gear I'm stuck in. And so I ride 40 miles down to towards Wellington, towards the boat, and I stop in a town called um, Upper Hut, I believe went into a bike shop and of course they don't have a derailleur hanger for my bike because this is a an american made bike linsky's made in tennessee and it's a very specific derailleur hanger that only they make for their bike so they said it would be about seven days to ship one in well i'm thinking even even stuck in my gearing i'm in i'm going to finish this thing in seven days so it's not going to be doing any good to order one so we're looking into maybe buying a different rear cassette maybe i buy a road cassette and put it on there so i can still run at single speed, but I'd have a better gear ratio. And then the guy at the shop's like, well, you know, maybe we can get this thing welded back together for you. So he, he starts making phone calls and calls a machine shop in town and tells him the circumstance, tells him I'm in the middle of this, this tour across New Zealand and sends me to this guy. I show up, he looks at this derailleur hanger and he's not feeling very confident. He's like, yeah, it's aluminum, but it's an aluminum alloy. He's like, I'm going to weld it with pure aluminum so now it's going to be weaker. It's probably going to break again. And he's like, I don't, I don't even really think I should try it. And I'm like, man, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to be any worse off. You might as well give it a shot. And he's like, all right, I'll, you know, I'll weld it up for you. And he spends about an hour of time welding it and then having to remachine it a little bit and, you know, and try it, fit it back on my bike. And he ended up not even charging me for it because he was, uh, you know, he was kind of stoked at what I was doing, what I was in the middle of doing. And then, for the fact he thought it was going to fail, so he didn't really want to charge me to for something that was going to fail. So, you know, that was just, you know, generous, a super generous guy down there, just fix this thing, spend an hour of his time, stop what he was doing in the middle of another project that he was working on, and just to help me out. And it seemed like uh, that, that was kind of normal down there in New Zealand. There was just so many generous people. Everyone's out there willing to help each other. It's just a great community down there. So why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe because the the crime is a lot less than it is in the U.S., or it's just the way they're raised. You know, it's. I mean, who knows exactly? It's fascinating when we visit another culture to see sometimes somewhat subtle differences, and sometimes the the subtle things are actually the most impacting, right? But just people that are willing to take a break and help somebody—that that's kind of the norm. Uh, in the United States, you'll find people that do that too. 
but I wouldn't necessarily call it the norm. Here, it's more like, okay, this is our rate. This is what we charge. This is our business model. This is the business we do. Can you fit in that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 it wasn't, uh, I mean, we get people like that and it seems like it's the adventure sport community. I, I'd like to say it's the running community or, you know, the mountain biking community, but I see it in a lot of these endurance or adventure sport communities where everyone kind of tries to help each other out. And maybe it's because of what we're doing is so stinking hard. You're not worried about, you know, actual competition from anyone. It seems like most people, the real competition is just finishing the event at all. And so everyone's really willing to help each other in these, these kind of situation. But I mean, this guy wasn't even in the event. He wasn't a cyclist. He was just a nice guy. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's really cool. So did the derailleur last or did it break again? No, it lasted more than half of my trip, rest of the rest of my vacation. <laughs> right on. So I imagine you replaced it. Uh, yeah, since then I've ordered a new one. It's coming right now. <laughs> but I, I ended up emailing that guy as soon as I was done and you know thanked him so much for his generosity and let him know I finished the ride. That's fun. He was, a, he was excited to hear that. What are you going to do with the, uh, the old derailleur? It, it's almost like a conversation piece now. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll just keep it and hang it on the wall <laughs> in the garage. Well, there's a good story attached to it. You'll always think of that guy when you see it up there, too. Oh, man, I will. And, I mean, there's I mean, a lot of these kind of memories like that. That When I'd go to a campground, I'd, you know, put random strangers, they'd see you right up in your bike in the middle of the night or, you know, super late at night, and they want to hear about what's going on. And almost every one of them invited me in for tea. They'd invite me into their motorhome or into their house. Or they just everyone was would invite me in for tea, and of course I would take them up on it because it's. I thought that was great. People are so friendly. It, it and I keep saying that on the show. Adventure sports breed this kind of interaction because people are fascinated by it. You have a community built around it, all that kind of stuff, and it just builds such a wonderful life experience. So, so you like the people in New Zealand, then? Yeah. I'm- I mean, though those this all bring back more memories from this trip from the people I met and some of these experiences. I mean, there, there's a there's also a Facebook group for the Tour Altira, so a lot of the riders that are in it will you know chime in questions or talk about stuff here and there. There'd be some guys that were like two days or three days from finishing it, and they posted a picture of how their derailleur just grenaded, and they're like, "Well, my ride's done. You know, there's no bike shops here." And the, people would chime in, "Hey, man, I'm." I can come pick you up. I got parts for your bike and there'd be just other guys in the tour on this group would go over and give the guy parts and work on his bike and send him on his way. And it was, uh, it's pretty cool to see. There's actually a lot of that on this Facebook group. Um, you know, locals down in New Zealand, just really helping each other out. Just the communities all getting together to, to help that. Right on. So how many of the people on the tour were New Zealanders versus people from other places? You know, I don't, I don't know the st- the stats on that but it, it seemed like it was probably 80 percent people from new zealand and then the rest of the people were just random is you know uh united states guys from australia people from the uk some guys from italy there was people from everywhere it seems like this sort of a thing is so much more doable than it once was you know the world is a smaller place it's not so hard to get to new zealand in the first place but i think that offers amazing opportunities these days yeah yeah, it, and you know, and the more popular these kind of events hap- you know, seem to happen, the more you start thinking you can do it yourself. You're seeing other people who 
they look like you know a normal Joe who just rides his bike and he's out there pushing hard and he finishes and it, it inspires you to go out and do it as well. So, you know, once people start doing this more and more, it seems to get more popular. People can believe that they can do these crazy giant distances. Well, if someone were to do it, not as a part of the event, but they're just going to go do it with a buddy or something, then what kind of distances do you think they could practically do if they didn't want to do the huge long days? So if, if you wanted to do the event, you had to do it in 30 days. So that would be at least 100 kilometers a day. And in my opinion, that's definitely doable as long as you're you know, an athlete of some sorts. But if you're just going to go out and tour it, there's no reason why you couldn't do it in 30 to 45 days. Um, I mean, there are some challenging terrain and sections, but there's also, you might have a full day of flat pavement on the next day. One day you might have three days in a row of single track trail and it's just extremely slow moving, but there are so many towns out there that, so the distances I was going, I was passing at least two towns up to three towns a day. So there was always chance to resupply food. There was always a chance to hit a cafe if you wanted or go get coffee there's campgrounds all over the place. So I, I downloaded this app called uh, Wiki Camps, I believe. And you can download it for offline use because I'd have my phone in airplane mode to save battery the whole time. And you can just see every campground that's along the route. So you can plan your day easily by campgrounds and stay at a campground every night if you want and have a nice shower. It's, it's pretty, logistically, it's, it's really doable route. Whereas you look at like the tour divide and there was a few times you'd have a, you'd have a day or two spread out where you might not hit a town. Right. So the resupplies are reasonable. It sounds like it's, it's really doable, but I have to say, I read a, a little bit of one of the fellows wrote a, an article about his ride and I read, he said 29,000 meters of climbing. We're talking about more than three Mount Everests. Is it really that, that huge? Yeah, I got I got over thirty thousand meters, so about just about a hundred thousand feet of climbing for for the trip, and it was about eighteen hundred miles of cycling. Mm, eighteen hundred miles, hundred thousand feet of climbing. <laughs> so it's it's not for the faint of heart, yeah. man. That's that's substantial. It is. Um, I mean, some days, like I said, would be pancake flat, and some days I would do one hundred and twenty miles, and I'd get. 12,000 feet of climbing. So there's some days where it was a lot of climbing and a lot of challenging single track. So, I mean, there were days that were really challenging. And then there were some days where as long as you didn't have a headwind, it was an easy day. That sounds like so much fun. So what was one of your favorite parts of the ride? Just something that really hit you as cool. Uh, As far as the scenery? Anything. uh, Trails? Wide open question. Uh, I would say there was the... uh, Wanganui National Park, you, uh, you leave this town. So there's a section where you, you get to the bridge to nowhere. So this bridge to nowhere, I'll just do a quick little discussion on it. Back in the early 1900s, they were planning on connecting some towns. So they built these nice bridges to go over some creeks and rivers. And then they just kind of gave up on this idea. So now there's this bridge out in the middle of nowhere, and it's called the bridge to nowhere. So you do about, now it's like 20 miles of single track really rough terrain you get to this bridge out in the middle of nowhere and then another mile later it ends up at the wanganui river and that's it you're done you're out in the middle of nowhere so you have to call ahead of time and schedule a jet boat to pick you up but you have to tell them when you're going to be there and so the guidebook that you buy that's part of this tour 
says that the average person takes 10 to 12 hours to get to the river. And so I you call up call up this jet boat company and say, yeah, I'll be there at 6 p.m. And then you ride like hell to make sure you're there <laughs> a little bit early. And then this jet boat picks you up and it's they you ride about 45 minutes down this just gorgeous river. And it was a, it was a pretty fun experience. I mean, I had the boat all to myself. I just randomly showed up at the river and I was the only one there. So I got, you know, a personal ride in jet boat. And that was a, a pretty awesome experience out there on that tour. So we've had some people that do uh, pack rafting with their bike packing so that they can actually use the rivers and, and take their bike that way. How big was this river? Is that a doable idea? Oh, it's absolutely. But it's only about 50 kilometers long. So if you were going to carry a raft with you for the entire trip, it'd be a lot of a lot of work to carry a raft for a short session, but you could. <laughs> uh, the other option is you can hire this jet boat to drop off a canoe for you or a kayak, and I could have kayaked down. Oh, that would be fun. So there are lots of ways to do it then. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fun, a lot of fun things on this this trip that the other, you know, like the tour divides or the other ones don't have, and it's they make you go to these really remote places and then you have to take a boat to get across something. I mean, even in Queenstown, you had, I had to get on a, uh, it's like a 110 year old steamboat to get across the lake near Queenstown. And that was a cool experience. I've never been on a steamboat and you get to go in to the engine room and you can check out and see the, the, the guys who feed the coal into the, into the fire and watch the engine working. <laughs> that is so fun. So it's an amazing tour. It's not just about the biking. You really got a, a big taste of what New Zealand is like. Oh yeah, and it's you know it's an incredible way to see pretty much most of New Zealand. I mean, I wish I had more than three weeks time. If I had six weeks of time, there was a lot of little side trips. I really wish I had time to go do, but I only had three weeks of vacation available, so I maximized my vacation and. I had to get through this route to finish. Well, you know, you you were going pretty fast. You say that according to this uh, event, you're supposed to finish in 30 days, and you did it a lot faster than that. Did that mean that you were kind of on your own, or were there other people that were going that speed too? There were there were a few guys finished in 10 days, guys who lived in New Zealand. But in order to finish in 10 days, it means you ride through the night a lot. And my, my rule to myself was I didn't want to ride at night because I didn't want to miss scenery. Right. Because it was a very good chance. I may, I may never make it back to New Zealand again. So I wanted to maximize my scenery. So I only went during daylight. So I'd ride it from sunrise to sunset every day. So you were still spending a lot of time on the bike. So what, 12, 14 hours? Yeah. When I look back like on my Strava, it shows you how, how much time you actually spend moving. So I, I would average probably... 11 hours a day of actual pedaling but then you spend so much time going grocery shopping resupplying food showering cleaning clothes there's a there's a lot of time that goes into the day you pretty much you spend all day taking care of yourself you'd have to when you're doing that much of an athletic event you know you have to take care of yourself While hiking along the Appalachian Trail, fellow adventurer and podcast listener Scott Newman faced an age-old problem that we're all familiar with, foggy eyewear. So he did something about it. He solved that problem with Sven Kansi's anti-fog solution. Biodegradable, odorless, and 100% guaranteed, Sven Kansi is the solution for all four seasons across all lens types. 
Go to SvenCanSee.com today and enter promo code ADVENTURE to get two bottles for the price of one. That's S-V-E-N-CanSee.com. Thanks for hanging out with us and listening to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. I want to take a minute to give a shout out to all our patrons. We have Krista, John, Jeremiah, Isaac, Sarah, Mandy, Clara, Christy, Eric, William, and Chance. Thank you so much, guys, for being willing to chip in on Patreon and help us out to support the show. If the rest of you are finding the interviews with adventurers inspiring, then consider helping us out on Patreon as well. You can go to our website at adventuresportspodcast.com and smash that big red button that says become a patron. Every little bit helps. It keeps us going and it keeps the show alive. Thanks, guys. What about support along the way? I know it's self-supported, but um, when you would arrive in a campground, were they expecting you? Did people put out pancake breakfasts and things like that, or did you pretty much just have to figure it out? No, you just figure it out. You uh, Some guys would schedule ahead of time hotels, or they'd pre-plan the boats, but I, I think it's, honestly, I kind of think it's a mistake to do that unless you really know the route, because you don't know if you know this 100-mile section is going to take you 15 hours or it's going to take you seven so it's better just to kind of plan day by day and even even halfway through the day i'd maybe at lunchtime i'd look at the campground list and see how where i thought i could end up and i would just show up and this uh this event ends up happening at the tail end of summer so most of the tourism is already kind of gone so the campgrounds were pretty much open i never had any issues booking any hotels or any hostels or any anything so you think someone can wing it pretty pretty easily? Yeah, absolutely. Most people are winging it. Nice. Just because there's just too many there's too many variables, too many variables like weather. There's variables like your leg hurts and you can only do 50 miles today. Or I mean, you just don't know. It's just better just to, to wing it. What kind of support was there for the ride? Was there any sort of a sag wagon or people checking to make sure that people got to their location, or was it pretty much just you're on your own? No, it's pretty much you're on your own, but everyone, everyone, if you're a part of the official ride, you have to get one of the spot trackers and you sign up through the company. This one was map progress. So you have live tracking. So your tracker's always on so they can see where you're at. And it was pretty cool because my, my parents would actually follow along and check in throughout the day to see how I'm doing and see where I'm riding. And they, and they had fun just following that, watching dots on a map. <laughs> so that was that was the only support that you really had was no support but people are watching so at least if you don't move for three days they can call somebody <laughs> right exactly oh, and, and that did happen there were a lot of worried wives who would who would see their husband hadn't moved in day and they'd chime in on facebook hey has anyone seen this guy he's not moving <laughs> so it, was, it was pretty neat but man uh the, the trip is amazing i I'd, I'd highly recommend it to anyone. It, it's, it was definitely the best event I've ever done. The best thing on a bike I've ever done. It, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to describe it. I mean, I've, I've done other bike packing tours just solo, but there was something about this route with these other, with this community that was pretty special. There'd be towns who would put up signs randomly throughout the route. And they'd, they had this one giant sign out on the, I think it's, I'm going to pronounce it wrong the Haraki rail trail. 
and they put a giant poster across the thing that said pedal damn it in giant words pedal damn it and then it said well done ta 2018 <laughs> that's funny you'd see other signs like uh, farmers would have a sign out on their driveway that said ta riders welcome to camp on our property uh out on some of these random, really wild single track trails out in the middle of nowhere, a hotel put out a basket of candy and said, help yourself, TA riders. And not just out in the middle of nowhere, a little thing of candy that people are putting out for you. Nice. What about friends you made along the way? You feel like you made some, some lasting friendships? I did. Um, I met a few guys out riding. I mean, everyone, everyone, there was some guys who plan on riding together. They'd start out and then they'd separate after the first half day because they'd find out that everyone's agenda is a little different. One guy wants to ride sunrise to sunset. The other guy's done at five. So I'd ride with one guy, you know, eight hours through the day, this guy named Pete. And we hung out and it was a good time. And then he, it was five o'clock. He wanted to just ditch out and go to a pub and I wanted to keep going. And then uh, that night it was raining and ended up in this town. And this guy, Dylan, shows up and another lady, Helen and we're standing out in the rain and we decided just to split a hotel room together. And the, uh, this guy, Dylan was asking me, he, cause he lives in Invercargill, which is like the main town in the South end of the South Island. So it's near the finish. And he's like, well, how are you going to get your bike back when you're all done with this trip? And I'm like, well, I'll just, I'm going to have to go to a bike shop, you know, and ask for a cardboard box. And he's like, well, why don't you message me? I know the bike shops down there. I'll get you all, I'll get you squared away. And he's like, if you need, I might have like a lawn you can pitch a tent on. I'm like, oh, sweet, you know, a free place to camp. And when I finished the ride, Dylan messaged me on Facebook. He's like, hey, I got a bedroom for you if you want to come stay. And I'm like, man, I'll be there. Nice. And uh, this guy gave me a, a bedroom to stay in for the last two nights. And he fed me every night, fed me meals. He, uh, he, when I showed up there, he had a box ready for me, a bike box to put my bike in. And uh, he, it, the generosity was just amazing. He was a great host. And it just seemed like that was... I don't know if that's a New Zealand thing or if this just this guy was just, you know, a great guy. Well, either way, it left a lasting impression, huh? Doesn't it feel nice when people are so kind? Oh man. Yeah. And you know, just to wrap up the last days of my vacation, it was it was great to have a, a local show me around. He took me uh net fishing, took me to the coast and we had this some wetsuits and you know, drug a net and caught some flounders, cooked them up for lunch and you know, just the extra experience from a local that was showing me around was great. Mm, and flounder tastes good. Man, that's good. Oh, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> so any recommendations for people who might want to try this? Where should they start? How can they find out more information and figure out how to piece this together? Uh, first thing would be to go to the the main website. So just Google search Tour Aotearoa. And if you forget that, just type in Bikepacking New Zealand. I think that's one of the first things that pops up. Uh, the website, well, they're on there. There's a, a route tab. You can download the GPX file from there. So you can just download the route onto your Garmin and go do it on your own if you wanted. Um, I believe they do this ride every two years. So the next time you wanted to do the official route with, you know, another 600 riders, it's 2020 will probably be the next time. Well, it sounds so delightful. Um, what a neat opportunity. I, I'm sure there's some of the listeners out there like, yeah, I'm signing up for it. I got to do it. It sounds like a fantastic ride. I would like to do it. I've done some uh, distance biking on events like this years ago, and I loved it so much. But that was here in the U.S., 
never had the opportunity to go somewhere like New Zealand and experience a new country and a new landscape and a new culture. So sounds beautiful. Yeah, and, and it really is an, a very easy overseas country to visit because they're English speaking. And I mean, their accent is you know close to the UK, kind of across between the UK and Australia, a, li- a little bit their own, but really easy to understand. Uh, the money exchange rate is pretty close. I think it was like 25 New Zealand dollars equals 20 US dollars. But you're going to find that everything kind of costs near the same anyways, even when you're there, except beer. For some reason, beer is like double or triple the cost. <laughs> well, Luke, if people want to uh, learn more or get in contact with you, do you have a way that they can do that? Yeah, I'm on all my adventures are on Strava. All my running and cycling and splitboarding is on Strava under my name, Luke Garton. I'm on Instagram at, at Luke Garton was taken. And I'm on Facebook. I have also made a, a video of this ride. It's on YouTube. It's a 17 minute long video that's on there. It shows a lot of the trails that we ride on and a few of my pictures are in it. And how do they find that? On YouTube, I, they can search my name. I think it comes up that way. And otherwise, the title is Tour Aotearoa 2018, a 3,000-kilometer bikepacking event. Nice. Well, Luke, it sounds like a great time. Thank you for sharing it with us. We sure appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I hope people uh, hope it inspires someone to go out there and check out New Zealand. Oh, yeah. I'm inspired. Now I just have to find the time, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the big challenge. Everyone out there, this sounds fantastic. If you like bike touring or if you've never even tried it, you know, think about bike touring. It's so fun. And to be able to do it in New Zealand with an event like this, meeting all the great people, I Luke really uh, made me want to go. So until the next show, think about your next adventure and make sure you do get out there. Have some fun. Coming up on Monday's episode, we're going to have Marvin Owen here. He'll be talking about his 1,200-mile, 80-day Columbia River trip. Until then, please do consider becoming a patron. You can find that over at AdventureSportsPodcast.com. There's a big Become a Patron button. And while you're surfing around on the internet, do us a favor and become a member of our Adventure Sports Podcast Facebook group. There's a lot of discussion in there about adventures going on. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll catch you on the next one.